Hello, and welcome to Conversations from the World of Allergy, a podcast produced by the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology. I'm your host, Dave Stukas. I'm a board-certified allergist and immunologist and serve as the social media medical editor for the Academy. Our podcast series will use different formats to interview thought leaders from the world of allergy and immunology. This podcast is not intended to provide any individual medical advice to our listeners. We do hope that our conversations provide evidence-based information. Any questions pertaining to one's own health should always be discussed with their personal physician. The Find an Allergist search engine on the Academy website is a useful tool to locate a listing of board-certified allergists in your area. Finally, use of this audio program is subject to the American Academy of Allergy, Asthma, and Immunology Terms of Use Agreement, which you can find at www.aaai.org. Today's edition of our Conversations from the World of Allergy podcast series will discuss venom allergy, also referred to as insect sting hypersensitivity. And I'm hopeful that our conversation will be useful not only for healthcare professionals, but also the general public as well. We're happy to welcome Dr. David Golden back to the show. Dr. Golden is an associate professor of medicine at Johns Hopkins University and division chief for allergy immunology at Sinai and Franklin Square Hospitals in Baltimore, Maryland. Dr. Golden is widely recognized as one of the world's foremost experts on insect sting hypersensitivity, and he previously was a guest on our podcast last year to discuss the Joint Task Force on Practice Parameters. Dr. Golden, thank you so much for taking time to join us, and welcome back to the podcast. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, absolutely. And I've wanted to have you on for a while to discuss this topic. I know it's near and dear to your heart, and it's going to be just a, a treasure trove of helpful information for our listeners. But before we kind of get into that, uh, if I go into PubMed right now and I search David Golden Venom, and I did this just before we started chatting, there are almost 50 publications that you have co-authored over the past 20 years related to this subject. When did you first become interested in insect sting hypersensitivity? And also, what sustained that interest throughout your career? Oh, that's a great question, um, and it is near and dear to my heart, although I I have, uh, with apologies to the entomologists that I've worked with for so many years, I have no love of singing insects. Um, <laughs> in fact, they almost put an end to my career early on. Uh, as a student and, and medical resident, I, I was always interested in immunology. That was my thing. Uh, I wasn't even sure I wanted to go into medicine, but I loved immunology, and I really wanted to know how allergy shots, immunotherapy works. And that's what brought me into allergy and into Hopkins <clears throat> because they're so well known for immunotherapy. Um, and uh, little did I know when I started my training that they were in the midst of developing a venom immunotherapy uh, uh, treatment. Uh, there was a program going on there, which uh, they knew what I was interested in. So they pretty much said, hey, you, Golden, you go work with the insect allergy program. <laughs> so that's how I got into insect allergy. Um, and uh, we'll come back later to why it nearly ended my career. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. All right. A little cliffhanger for us. <laughs> okay. Um, so that's great. So, and we're going to talk about immunotherapy. That's a, a huge part of what we're going to talk about today. So really that was, it was just in the early infancy stages when you, when you sort of got roped into um, researching it and learning more about it. What was that like to sort of be on the front lines of this, you know, this transformative therapy? It, it was amazing, uh, actually. The the week that I started, uh, literally the day, July 1st, that I started my uh, allergy training program at Hopkins was the publication date in New England Journal of Medicine for the uh, controlled trial of venom immunotherapy. So I started my career right with venom immunotherapy, but it was uh, it was not approved by the FDA until um, a year later. Uh, so this was all still investigational, and it was uh, a lot of fun to be involved in um, refining the treatment, uh, which also involved 
uh, stinging people, um, <laughs> which is something else we can talk about. That's a lot of fun. Uh, mostly yeah. for me, not so much for the people. <laughs> uh, and with a very, very huge pun intended here, was there a lot of buzz surrounding this at our uh, annual meetings and conferences? Oh, there was. And it was actually very controversial because for 50 years before that, the standard treatment was something called whole body extract, which mm-hmm. is pretty much just crushed up bees. Um, and it was endorsed by the Academy. It was uh, published uh, to be effective. And it turns out it was no better than placebo. And this study at Hopkins was the first actually placebo-controlled trial of venom immunotherapy, which really brought it into the modern era and showed that even something that doesn't work can have a 60% placebo effect, amazingly. (laughs) Uh, So it was really, really a a huge learning experience uh, and a lot of fun to be involved in, in this whole project at that stage. Wow. Well, well, let's let's table that for a second. I'm sure we're going to get to that soon. But uh, before we get into the meat of the conversation, can you help us all better understand what is meant by the term insect sting hypersensitivity? How does this involve the immune system? Uh, well, like all allergies, uh, the immune system is uh, at the core of the problem um, because it's the immune system that makes the initial mistake of a false recognition, if you will, of, of saying this insect venom or cat or grass or what have you is an invader and we need to protect against it and, and produce allergic antibodies, IgE, so that on future exposures uh, it can fight the invader. Uh, the problem is that that is what causes allergic reactions. Uh, so it's the immune system that um, arms the system with allergic antibodies and sets the stage for the allergic reactions that people get. And then with allergies, uh, is it safe to assume that for the most part it's reproducible, so cause and effect, I'm exposed to the allergen and my immune system has a, um, a similar response? And we'll talk about some of those nuances later. But... Yes, uh, that's so critical, of course. Um, and, and yes, uh, although they're, part of the problem is the uh, what we're trying to prove to be reproducible. We'll definitely talk more about the tests, for example, and what they do or don't mean. Uh, so uh, as much as we know that having the allergic antibodies is uh, necessary for these reactions, it's necessary but not sufficient for mm-hmm. these reactions. And that makes it kind of tricky. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um we're going to talk about various types of insect stings today, and I think it'd be useful um, to have you describe what this term hymenoptera means. Uh, can you provide some definition or what, tell us what this includes? Uh, sure. Uh, hymenoptera, the order hymenoptera, uh, is within the class uh, Insecta. So these are uh, a, a group of insects. The hymenoptera, the, um, uh, so maybe I should clarify that we're talking about stinging insects, not mm-hmm. biting insects. Uh, there can be some allergy to biting insects, like mosquito bites, but very rarely anaphylaxis. Uh, the severe allergic reactions, anaphylactic reactions are primary to uh, insects are generally to stinging insects, uh, all of which are in the order Hymenoptera, which includes three unrelated families, the bees, the wasps, and the ants. Um, and there are stinging ants. So these are not your garden variety uh, ants, but there are a number of um, species of stinging ants uh, that are different in different 
countries. So if you're allergic to the stinging ants in the U.S., imported fire ants, you are not necessarily going to react to the stinging ants that are in uh, the jackjumper ants in Australia or the other stinging ants in Asia, for example. Uh, whereas the bees are bees. If you're allergic to the bees, they're the same pretty much worldwide. The wasps, the, the common term wasp, uh, includes the vespids, the, uh, the vespula rather, and I, not to get into too much uh, entomology detail here, but those are the yellow jackets. There's also hornets. Um, and the same group of wasps include the Polistes paper wasps. Uh, so yellow jackets and paper wasps and hornets are all uh, closely related, uh, even though there are some differences between paper wasps and the rest of the group. So those are the groups that we're talking about within the order Hymenoptera. Okay, and I really like how you provided that distinction of stinging versus biting. I think that's a, a common misconception among, uh, I know, the patients that I see, at least, in the general public. So you described bees, uh, wasps or vespids, and fire ants or stinging ants, all of which mm -hmm. contain different types of venom. Other mm -hmm. than cussing and jumping up and down, what's a normal response to being stung by venom for a human being? Um, sometimes nothing, surprisingly. <laughs> uh, you would think people would always know when they get stung, but... Uh, by first-hand observation, when we would do sting challenges, there were people who would say, so have you stung me yet? And we would say, well, yeah, we, we already did. Uh, and they didn't even notice. But much more commonly, the normal reaction is pain, itching. Now, the venoms contain uh, natural ingredients, vasoactive amines and histamine and other ingredients that cause pain and itching and swelling and redness. So those are normal reactions uh, of the skin and local tissues to the venom that's injected with an insect sting. So that's a normal response, and yet I hear from patients all the time that they were stung on an extremity, developed localized redness, swelling, itching, warmth, and they went to for evaluation at an urgent care or other facility, and they were treated with antibiotics. Can you help us set the record straight? Is this cellulitis, or is this just an expected response to being injected with venom? It's uh, well, it's not an infection. So uh, if the clinician in the emergency or urgent care facility would really think about it, uh, they would know the key here is the time frame. So first of all, I said that, uh, that I mentioned the normal reaction. And the normal reaction is usually not that big and not that long. Uh, but what you're describing is often what happens that the patient or person wakes up the next morning with a much larger swelling, uh, sometimes with red streaks that are going up towards the underarm or the groin. And uh, because of the very large swelling. So now we're not talking about normal swelling. In, in, in these cases, usually we're talking about swellings of four to six inches or larger rather than one to two inches at the most. Um, so they go to the urgent care and the urgent care sees these red streaks and says, this is cellulitis, you need antibiotics. You can't get infection at the sting site in 12 to 24 hours. It's just, as far as I know, that's impossible. It would take days. And that can happen rarely. People scratch them and they get infected, and, uh, and that's pretty rare. But what what, it, what you're seeing in these cases is not a an infectious lymphangitis. It's an inf allergic inflammatory lymphangitis. The intense allergic inflammation, the late phase reaction, large local reaction, uh, is causing drainage of uh, through the uh, uh, lymphatic drainage. So it is a lymphangitis. It's just not an infection. Mm -hmm. It's inflammation. 
Okay. Uh, perhaps for the next Choosing Wisely series, uh, you know, we can put on the list of do not routinely use antibiotics for the treatment of venom stings or something like that. <laughs> right. Cold compresses, maybe a couple of days of steroids if there's a really large swelling. Um, but no, no antibiotics. Okay. Well, you, you mentioned um, so normal response as well as touched upon abnormal responses. Can you describe some of those abnormal responses to being stung? And when should we become concerned about insect sting hypersensitivity? For starters, there are local reactions, abnormal local reactions, which is what I was just describing. We call them large local reactions because they're large and they're local. Um, and they're usually delayed. So it starts 6 to 12 hours after the sting and builds up over 24 hours or more sometimes and takes uh, 3 to 10 days to go down. Uh, and that can be alarming. It can be the whole arm or leg or face. Um, and antibiotics are not needed, but it's still a scary reaction. But it's not technically dangerous. It's local. Mm -hmm. And that's one kind of reaction that people may seek uh, attention for or want to know whether to be afraid for future reactions. Uh, and we can talk about uh, the prognosis in all these cases, but the systemic reactions um, are systemic. So this is where there are uh, manifestations that are away from the site of the sting. If you get stung on your toe and your toe swells up, it's a local reaction. If you get stung on your toe and your face swells up, it's a systemic reaction. Um, not all systemic reactions are anaphylaxis. If your face swells up, that's not anaphylaxis. If you break out in hives all over your body, that's still technically not anaphylaxis because uh, the definition of anaphylaxis requires multiple systems and or uh, anaphylactic shock. Um, so systemic reactions range from mild, uh, even being covered in hives is considered mild, to moderate or severe where there's uh, throat tightness, trouble breathing, dizziness, or uh, unconsciousness. And that's the range of abnormal reactions uh, that we see. And, and just a note here maybe to say that um, it's common for people to have, uh, who have had a systemic or anaphylactic reaction to say, well, I've had many previous things with no reaction at all. Why did this happen now? Mm -hmm. um, and that also usually leads them to say, oh, well, I never had a problem before, so this must have just been a fluke. It'll never happen again, mm -hmm. which is why most people don't even tell their doctor that they had a severe reaction because in their mind it was a fluke. Uh, unfortunately, it wasn't a fluke. Uh, even though all these uneventful stings came before it, once you've had anaphylaxis to a sting, you're at high risk for having it again. Okay. So um, you, you, I, I'm hearing you describe really three different categories of abnormal responses. The large, mm -hmm. localized, uh, more exaggerated response. Um, the uh, generalized uh, response involving just one part of the body, such as the skin, and then we have anaphylaxis. Um, you mm -hmm. use the word prognosis. How does prognosis change based upon those three presenting um, types of reactions? In two ways. Um, both the chance of having a reaction, a risk, I think of risk as two things, the frequency and severity, and they can be quite different. You could have a 50% chance of a mild reaction or a 1% chance of dying, and so frequency and severity can be very different. Um, the, both the frequency and the severity of future stings uh, are related to previous stings and sometimes to other factors. And, and actually, that's very much uh, a focus of research uh, in the past and, and ongoing is to try to find the most accurate ways of, uh, for, for prognosis, for predicting what's going to happen next time because uh, it's not that easy. Um, the 
more severe the reaction, the more the chance that a future sting is going to cause a systemic reaction. So the large local reactor may have uh, a less than 5% chance of a, of a future sting causing a systemic reaction. Uh, the patient who got hives all over may have also less than 5% chance of a future sting uh, causing a severe reaction. But the people who have had severe anaphylactic reactions may have a 50% chance uh, or more of a future sting causing uh, a systemic reaction. So the chance goes up with the, with the severity. As far as severity, what's the chance of of a severe reaction? Um, interestingly, you know that, that the thing that we hear, uh, or that people apparently hear from their emergency doctors, pri primary doctors, friends, and relatives, is the next one will kill you. Mm. Uh, and that's actually it's the opposite. Um, it's the that's the exception rather than the rule. So. Reactions, anaphylactic reactions or allergic reactions to stings generally don't get worse and worse with each sting. They usually are uh, roughly the same. Large local reactors usually continue to have large local reactions and, and so on. Um, so it's unusual to have to, for a reaction to be noti no notably more severe than a previous reaction was. Uh, so both the ch chance, the frequency of a reaction and the severity of reaction are predicted um, maybe better than anything else uh, by the previous reaction. Okay, so the clinical history, um, like most things in allergy, <laughs> seems like it's the most important part of the evaluation. Would you, would Absolutely. you agree with that? Okay. Absolutely. Well, let's say somebody does present and uh, there's concern for an abnormal response, especially if it's you know diffuse cutaneous or systemic reaction after being stung. What types of allergy tests are available to help confirm their diagnosis or even rule it out, and when should they be used? Well, I, I'm going to use a great segue from the from what we were talking about to say take a good history first, mm -hmm. uh, and, and that's really very relevant because I, I always tell allergists or uh, physicians, clinicians in general, don't do the test uh, before you think carefully about what results you're expecting and what you're going to do with it. Uh, don't expect the test to make the diagnosis. That's just not the case in allergy, right? Mm -hmm. The allergy test can confirm the diagnosis, but it can never make the diagnosis by itself. Um, and and that, that's in this case especially because, and in all allergies, because there's so many people who have allergic antibodies but don't have any reaction, whether it's cats or peanut or bee stings, there are many, many people who have IgE antibodies and don't have reactions, which we don't understand. That's a Nobel Prize in the waiting right mm -hmm. there. Um, so don't just do a test um, if you don't already know what you're going to do when it's positive because people do the test thinking, oh, it'll be negative and that will make everybody feel better. But if you're really wishing it's going to be negative, it's never going to be negative. It's always <laughs> going to be positive. Um, so, and this is especially critical. I'll just use the anecdote that, cause I see this a lot of time being in Baltimore and so close to, uh, to some of the, uh, Naval of course, and, and other, and army facilities mm. is the, um, person who's a prospective, uh, uh, armed forces recruit and, um, mentions on their form or verbally that, oh, I think I had an allergic reaction to a sting when I was a kid. That's it. They're done. They can't get into the military. Uh, and if someone does a test and it's positive, then for sure they're not getting in. Uh, unfortunately, 20 plus percent of people have a positive test. 
like I said, a lot of people have a positive test even though they don't have a reaction. In fact, within the few months after a sting, up to 40% have a positive test. Um, so think twice about why you're doing the test and what you're going to do if it's positive. The best reason to do the test is if there's a clear need for venom immunotherapy, the patient who had a moderate to severe anaphylactic reaction to a sting. The test, to go back to your question, there are, uh, like all allergies, pretty much, there are skin tests and serum IgE tests that are both pretty good. They're not exactly the same, and we now think of them as being complementary. Um, and you can start with either one, but if it's negative, do the other one. If they're negative, repeat it later. Uh, th there are some tricky parts in interpretation of these tests, but the tests we have available are skin tests and blood tests. So to kind of summarize, um, and I, I would also like to emphatically reinforce what you also emphatically reinforce, everything starts with the clinical history. And if the clinical history suggests that that person is at risk to have future anaphylaxis when they're stung again, and we're already thinking they'd benefit from immunotherapy, that's when we should be thinking about doing either the skin or blood test. Does that sound like an accurate uh, reflection of what you just said to us? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, so don't test first and ask questions later. <laughs> right. <laughs> so you you, meant, you just mentioned something about 20% of the population will have detectable IgE, and you said that can go up to 40% after being stung. So even if they haven't had anaphylaxis, can they have detectable IgE just after a sting in and of itself? And what do we do with that information? Well, hopefully we don't have that information because we didn't do the test, <laughs> uh, unless they have a severe reaction, in which case the test is considered confirmatory. But really, uh, the the questionable reaction, the person who said, I, I think I got stung and I think I had a reaction, so you do the test and it's positive, all that really confirms is that they got stung. Mm. It doesn't necessarily confirm they had a reaction unless their history confirms to you that they had a reaction. And does the size of the skin and or serum test indicate severity of future reactions? I was hoping you'd ask that question. <laughs> you you kind of led me there. <laughs> <laughs> My shortest answer of the day, no. <laughs> All right. So that's this is great. This is uh, there this are, is there, there are there, it does correlate. The stronger the test, the more the chance of reaction and maybe even more more severity. But the problem is the outliers, the people who have very strong test results and little or no reaction, and the people who have a barely detectable venom IgE and have life-threatening anaphylaxis. So it's just not a reliable predictor. Okay. Uh, I think I can predict the answer, but I want to hear, I want to clearly ask the question and then hear you state the uh, the answer, if I may. So I get asked this all the time. I focus on, on pediatrics, as you know. So I get asked by parents whether I can just test their child for allergy to bees or other stinging insects, even if they've never experienced a prior sting or reaction. So should we be testing everyone just to make sure they're not allergic? Oh boy, you're making this easy for me. No. <laughs> <laughs> okay. For exactly the reasons that we've been talking about, of course, that uh, a positive test doesn't doesn't tell you anything other than they've been stung before sometime in their lives, and and create the problem is that a positive test creates fear. It creates a, a burden uh, of precautions or, or epinephrine injectors, and and uh, without a known without a known actual risk. Yeah, it's it's extremely problematic, and I always think it's interesting when um, when yourself and other experts in our field really, if if we listen to what you have to say, it's like don't test as much as we as people 
are prone to do. Uh, I think the overuse of testing leads to a lot of problems and um, we need to try to sort of uh, backtrack and really be thoughtful about the history first. So Dr. Golden, I know you've just discussed you know, nuance surrounding this, but what about somebody who has a family history of venom allergy? My father, uh, you know, died from a bee sting or almost died mm. or who knows what. Mm. Are, are there siblings or children at, at increased risk to have allergy and should they be tested? No and no, but that sometimes is a really tough one. Mm -hmm. uh, so first of all, family history, it, it's not an atopic condition. It's not like asthma and rhinitis and, uh, and eczema. Uh, it, it doesn't particularly run in families, more than 95% of people that we see with insect allergy have no family history of insect allergy. Um, we have seen families, in fact, that's what got Hopkins into this in the first place, was a family of beekeepers in central Pennsylvania uh, who were on that treatment that didn't work, whole body extract therapy, mm -hmm. and one of the children, unfortunately, actually died from a bee sting despite the treatment. And in desperation for the other kids, they sought out, uh, I won't give you the whole long story, but they landed up being the... Uh, test cases for venom immunotherapy at Hopkins, um, which worked. Um, so, but those are rare for there to be strong family uh, cases like that. So, um, but it's a hard sell. So the answer is no, it doesn't particularly run in families. We don't need to test you. Uh, if you've ever been stung in your life, it may be positive. And then what are we gonna do uh, besides be afraid? Um, but uh, I've had, those cases. And I've had a patient who uh, had an immediate family member who died, and uh, there was just no way that this patient was going to take no for an answer. I knew that if I, if I stood my ground, the patient was going to go somewhere else and have a test drawn and, and, and then not come back to me to discuss the result. Mm -hmm. So I landed up actually testing them, and thank God they were negative. But um, we, this is... Uh, like so many things that we do, even when we think we know the right thing to do, there still may be shared decision-making involved. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and we'll talk about a couple other interesting scenarios as we move along. But I want to go back to the testing for one second because, um, I, you know, there's all these new types of tests that are being developed. And there's one particular type called a component test uh, that have been around for, for food allergies and, and now available for venom as well. What role do these tests have in the evaluation of suspected insect sting hypersensitivity? Yeah, that's the new kid on the block. And, and <laughs> uh, we were initially not sure what we could do with it. It's been very popular in Europe for quite a few years. Um, one thing it doesn't do is um, increase, give us a, a, a better test, a more sensitive test uh, to go back to the, what we have, skin tests, and, uh, routine skin tests and blood tests, neither test is perfect. They're both very good, um, but they're not perfect. Uh, there are uh, occasionally patients who have a perfectly clear history of anaphylaxis to a sting and have negative tests. Uh, so on rare occasions, we wish we had a better test. Uh, component tests are not better in that sense. Um, but they do detect IgE that's specific for particular insects and doesn't cross-react the way the regular tests do. So we often see people who have positive tests for honeybee and yellow jacket, mm -hmm. but they've only had one reaction and we can't be sure which it was. So the answer to this point in practice has been, well, you have to treat with everything that's positive because you have to make sure the patient is protected against all possible anaphylactic reactions. 
But with component resolve testing, using recombinant venom allergens um, that don't have the same cross-reactivity because they don't have CCDs, cross-reacting carbohydrate determinants, uh, because of the way they're manufactured, they're cleaner, if you will. And using the component testing, we may be able and often can tell that this patient who has positive skin tests of both honeybee and yellow jacket actually shows a pattern in the component testing that says they're primarily allergic to just one and not the other. And then we can uh, use only that one venom for their treatment instead of using both venoms. So that's the real use of component testing. There are, although I will add, when I, I should maybe backtrack for a second because I said they weren't better. That's not 100% true. Um, there are, as with many allergens, uh, allergists will know that when we talk about uh, things like fruits, apple, there are, part, there are allergens that are unstable and break down rapidly. Um, so that uh, using apple skin test or apple blood test may be negative, but if we test with a fresh apple, it may be positive. Um, so likewise with venoms, the venoms we use for skin tests and blood tests um, there are venom allergens, notably APM10 in honeybee venom, that are unstable and are not well represented in the commercial venoms. So someone could have a negative test for honeybee allergy, but when you do component testing, the APM10 test may be positive. So there are some times that component testing can actually reveal an allergy that doesn't even show on the regular tests. You mentioned that it's sort of the newer newer kid on the block. Do we have a sense of when in the evaluation component tests should be used? Should it be used uh, as first-line testing when the clinical history indicates risk for future anaphylaxis, or should it be used to help clarify uh, some of the, um, you know, the confusing test results you get on skin or, or typical serum IG testing? Uh, definitely the latter. Uh, in the end, component testing is not as sensitive. Uh, despite the occasional case, like I said, of that allergen, uh, overall the problem is that component testing doesn't include all the components that are in the venoms. Mm. Uh, it, it, so the natural venoms are still the most sensitive test, whether by skin test or, or, or blood test. Uh, the component testing should be used mainly to clarify cross-reactivity of honeybee and vespid al allergies. Okay, I think that was a very good description. Thank you for that. Um, speaking of... Uh, although, uh, I'll add, just to, because I, I did this before, and I should do it again. That's true. That's the primary role. But uh, to reinforce what I was saying before, if the yellow jacket or, or honeybee test is negative, mainly the honeybee one because of that allergen, uh, if, the, if the testing is negative, uh, that would also be a reason to do the component testing uh, on the chance that you've missed the allergy with the regular venoms. Okay. 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 Um, let's go back to something you, you touched upon very briefly, and uh, I've been fascinated with this ever since my fellowship training. Uh, this is the concept of insect sting challenges. Uh, so talk about, you know, first-line testing <laughs> um, uh, decades ago. Can you tell us more about what these involved? Like, walk us through what this actually looked like. Uh, uh, yeah, you know, it's interesting because at, at the time that I got into doing this, um, the whole concept of challenges was uh, and is very scary. I mean, these days we do drug challenges, we do food challenges, and uh, if it was a little easier, we would probably do sting challenges more too. Uh, but at that time, nobody was doing food challenges, uh, and, and even drug challenges were rarely done. 
Um, and, and it is scary when when the uh, outcome you're looking for is an anaphylactic reaction. Mm. Um, the you know when we did them initially, we were doing them in the clinic. Uh, actually, I'll, I'll run you through quickly uh, what, what we do and how we do it because it, it, it is definitely different. Um, <laughs> And, and, and then we thought it might be a better idea to do it in an area within the emergency department, and they let us have a couple of rooms, and um, and that's where we did them until the escape. Uh-huh. Um, we at that time we were to to administer the sting, we would uh, have them in little pill vials and and, and use a, a curved uh, surgical forceps to reach in and grab them by the leg and pull them down and make them sting. But one of them escaped and got up into the ventilation. Uh, uh, outlet uh, in, in the room and turned up in the ICU on the third floor. Oh my gosh. And uh, that was the end of <laughs> our use of that facility. Um, then we were back in the clinic again. Uh, but when we got to, to uh, doing studies where we were actually staying uh, untreated patients and in whom we, there was definitely a concern about possible severe reactions, we used um, a NIH supported uh, general Clinical Research Center, GCRC. Uh, so we had a grant to do that uh, at Johns Hopkins Bayview Center. Um, and uh, so that, that really is the ideal place to do any uh, really risky challenge is in that kind of, um, it's almost like a step-down unit, ICU-like setting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's still tricky because, uh, well, you need, if you, if you wanted to do this, could you do it in the clinic? Yes, you could. Uh, it's just, especially now that we do uh, food challenges and, and drug challenges, the concept that you need to have close monitoring over a period of several hours is not uh, so strange to us anymore. But then you also need bees, um, and the right bees. So, and if the supplier doesn't turn up, uh, this will go back to something I mentioned early on. Uh, in, in the first summer that we were doing this at Hopkins, the uh, beekeeper who was bringing in the bees didn't show up one day. So there I was with my study coordinator sitting in the courtyard with a Coke and a donut and a net. Oh uh, and that was very nearly the end of my career. <laughs> I, I went home and told my wife, this was not in my job description. I, I'm, <laughs> I'm done. I'm out of here. Um, so we ha- hired an entomologist uh, who was a delight to work with. And she invented, she and her husband invented uh, an escape-proof stinging device. Uh, it's basically a syringe with a wire mesh on the end and, and she can ship these overnight so and they come up stinging we, we actually demonstrated this uh, a while back uh, so if you want to do a sting challenge in your clinic uh, she can ship you honeybees or yellow jackets in this self-contained sting device and you can do sting challenges I have so many follow-up questions but I will limit them for the purposes <laughs> of our audience uh, I'll, I'll limit them to two if I may so first question uh, you're in the courtyard with the the coke and the donut and the net. Were you successful in procuring a bee at that day? We were. Ah, okay. Well, congratulations. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and then question two: How do you get the insects to sting? Uh, so, what type of uh, are you whispering in their ear, sweet nothings, or, or insulting them, or are you agitating them in some way? <laughs> the latter. Uh, the former doesn't work. We've tried it. Um, <laughs> The, they don't want to sting. They want to escape. Right. Uh, and in fact, when she was inventing this sting device, uh, the wire mesh on the end, if the wire mesh was too thick, they couldn't sting through it. If it was too thin, they would chew through it. 
they don't want to sting. They're just looking to get out of there. So this is actually a, a, a syringe. And uh, we press the mesh end against the skin and plunge the plunger. Uh, not so hard as to squish the bee, but hard enough to induce the bee to sting. Oh, my gosh. Uh, you know, this is so fascinating. Thank you for sharing. I just, I hope all of our listeners just pause for one second to think about where we are now in our capabilities to evaluate our patients uh, and where we've come from and how, <laughs> what, what the trial and error that must have taken place. <laughs> well, the scientific question that really comes of this, which we, we could get into for far longer, is <laughs> why, why is there, we do graded dose food challenges and drug challenges. Is there a graded dose venom challenge? Why are we using bees? And the answer is because, in, to make it very short, uh, venom injection challenge doesn't work. And there, there's, there's some fascinating stories about that. Uh, you have to use a live bee. Okay. Okay. Well, let, let's, uh, <laughs> let's, go, let's go back to you know, sort of the, the conversation that we were having before. So um, this is sort of on topic, I suppose. If somebody presents for evaluation and they are confident that this was the exact type of insect that stung them, of course, everybody says bees. Um, can we trust the history that they provide and only test for that specific insect? Or do we actually need to test for like all of the vespids and bees and things like that? Every identification by non-entomologists is unreliable, mm. no matter what. I mean, beekeepers pretty much know a honeybee, and people in endemic areas pretty much know a fire ant. But that's about where it ends. Um, when we ask the right questions, we can sometimes be pretty sure about where was the nest? Did you see them flying? Were they going in and out? Were they underground? Uh, what were they foraging for? Were they after the fruit or after the water or after the... Uh, wood railing. I mean, just by answering those questions, I could tell you in a moment whether it's a honeybee, a yellow jacket, or a wasp. Um, and that's probably a whole other conversation. We could spend hours on this. But um, do you have like a, a a quick spiel that you discuss with patients, or when you're giving sort of uh, you know curbside consults to our colleagues? Are there any distinguishing characteristics that really help to you know tease out whether it was a bee, a wasp, a hornet, or yellow jacket? Um. Pretty much the things I was saying, I mean, if the if they know where the nest is and they're confident that that's the nest of this insect, uh, then that's helpful. If it's in the uh, windowsills or eaves of the house, it's probably a paper wasp. Uh, if it's underground and they ran over it with a lawnmower, then it's Vispula maculifrons, which is the nastiest kind of yellow jacket. Mm. Uh, if it was um, stripping the wood off the railing of the deck, that's a paper wasp. Uh, so, and, and if you step on it in the clover and you, when you're barefoot, that's a honeybee. Mm -hmm. Uh, but as far as whether a stinger is left in the skin, uh, people always assume that that must be a honeybee and that's kind of true, but actually those mean yellow jackets that nest underground that you run over with your lawnmower, uh, we proved accidentally and published that they leave the stinger in the skin 25 to 50% of the time too. Hmm. Interesting. Um, okay, so location of the nest, if it's um, found or identified. Sometimes uh, the way so they fly, wasps fly with their legs kind of dangling down more than yellow jackets. Mm -hmm. Wasps have paper wasps have a so-called wasp waist. Uh, most people don't make a priority of closely examining examining the thing that stung them. Mm -hmm. uh, so, but but if they can describe it more or have a picture or. Uh, 
but the nesting and foraging, if if you have any information, if the patient thinks they know pretty much what the insect was doing, uh, those things may be helpful. But I, I, I just know I never, I can never totally trust it. I'm reminded of one of my patients who absolutely 100% was certain it was a bumblebee because he stuck his hand in a bush and got stung and he saw the bumblebee fly out of the bush. There was no mm. question in his mind. And, and I said immediately, no, there's no way. That, that's a typical scenario for a yellow hornet sting. And sure enough, his blood test was positive to yellow hornet and yellow hornet only. Mm. Uh, but he still didn't believe me. He was absolutely, he made me do the blood test. He made me go, go further to prove it wasn't a bumblebee. He was absolutely 100% certain. Hmm. Well, can bumblebees and even things like sweat bees cause allergic reactions? Is that something we should be testing for? Uh, they, it's very uncommon. Yes, they can. They are, they are hymenoptera. They are stinging insects. Um, and I've known patients to have anaphylactic reactions to both of those. Bumblebees are, uh, first of all, uh, like the honeybees, uh, bumblebees and carpenter bees are, are relatively docile. They don't sting you unless you really, really aggravate them or threaten them. Um, Greenhouse, it's an occupational allergy for greenhouse workers because bumblebees are often used in greenhouse uh, pollination. Hmm. Um, that's the one thing that I'm, I'm aware of. Sweat bees, uh, I, I'm, I've known them to sting and cause anaphylaxis, but it's very uncommon. There are no uh, commercial venoms available for skin testing or immunotherapy for either one. There is a blood test for bumblebee allergy. Okay. So much less likely, um, and you kind of have to have a, a higher index of suspicion, I suppose. Right. And they don't cross-react with honeybee. Mm, okay. Hmm. Um, you, you mentioned honeybees, and one particular type of uh, nasty yellow jacket uh, can mm. uh, typically be more prone to leave stingers behind. So what is the, here's a board question for everybody listening. What's the best method to remove a stinger if it does remain embedded in somebody's skin? Scrape, don't squeeze. So a fingernail or a credit card or business card, you you want to um, scrape it out uh, rather than squeeze it and push more venom in the skin. And if you don't do it within 10 to 20 seconds, then it doesn't matter anyway because all the venom is in. Oh, okay. And what would happen if you squeeze it? You push more venom into the skin. Okay. Okay. So scrape. Scrape, don't squeeze. I like that. Um, well, let's turn our focus to uh, identification of a patient who has experienced anaphylaxis after they've been stung. In addition to the venom allergy testing, are there other underlying conditions that we need to be aware of uh, that place them at risk to have that severe reaction in the first place? And if so, what are the ones that we need to, to kind of keep in mind and what type of testing should occur? Hmm. Lots of stuff there. Uh, the, the risk for severe anaphylaxis has been, in, in general, a focus of, of research and many publications, uh, because like other things like asthma or atopic dermatitis, it's the most severe cases that um, need the most help, basically, and are at greatest risk. Um, so there are, first of all, there are cofactors that we now recognize heat, exercise, alcohol, stress. I mean, mm. these can lead to more severe reactions. Uh, so when you get stung, it, it, it's unbelievable how often I hear this. I got stung doing my yard work, ran into the house uh, half a mile away and jumped in a hot shower. That's exactly the wrong thing to do. Stay cool and calm, literally, uh, because heat and exercise seem to accelerate or promote anaphylaxis. Um, but uh, your question really goes to uh, another major focus of the past uh, 10 to 15 years, which is the role of 
mast cell disorders, mm-hmm. uh, which seem to have a unique and prominent place in insect sting anaphylaxis. So clonal mast cell diseases like mastocytosis, and we now also recognize hereditary alpha tryptosemia that's present in 6% of the general population and in 10 to 20% of people with insect sting anaphylaxis. Uh, so these are disorders that make the mast cells either greater in number and or uh, increased release of mediators like histamine. So it's really important to recognize these uh, clinically. So these are usually associated with hypotension uh, and not hives, uh, more often in males. So the Spanish mastocytosis network has a scoring system, uh, the REMA score. If it was a male who had rapid onset hypotensive shock and no hives, uh, they have mastocytosis until proven otherwise, mm-hmm. for example. Okay. So, uh, and there's a test. So this is really important because um, patients with moderate to severe sting anaphylaxis, especially if they're hypotensive and had no hives, uh, should be tested for the baseline serum tryptase. It's a routine test, readily available. If it is elevated, then they need to be further investigated to figure out what kind of mast cell disorder they have but that having an abnormal tryptase level would put them at increased risk for severe life-threatening anaphylaxis to a sting. On the flip side, if a patient with um, confirmed mastocytosis or mast cell disorder um, comes for evaluation but has no prior history of being stung or anaphylaxis after a sting, uh, do they need to be evaluated for venom allergy or do we manage anything differently with them? Mm, I was hoping you wouldn't ask me that. <laughs> uh, that's controversial um, because there is one group uh, in the Netherlands that argues strongly, and they've had a couple of fatal cases, so we know where they're coming from, mm-hmm. uh, that patients, patients with mastocytosis have a 40% lifetime incidence of anaphylaxis, and the number one cause is insect stings. Uh, patients with mastocytosis who have insect sting anaphylaxis, it's invariably life-threatening or fatal. Um, if quite honestly, if I had mastocytosis, uh, I would want to be tested for venom IgE, and if I was positive, I'd want to be immunized with venom immunotherapy. Mm-hmm. Uh, I find that scenario really scary. But then there are other mast cell experts who argue that if, if the patient has never had a reaction to a sting, we don't have prospectively the data to answer the question. The the uh, which hopefully is being done, which is simply to look at cases of mastocytosis over a period of time and see what happens when they get stung, or to actually do sting challenge, which may be arguably unethical in patients with mastocytosis. Uh, so it's um, your, your question is, is very good and kind of controversial as to whether patients with mastocytosis should routinely be tested uh, and even treated for insect allergy, even if they never had a reaction. They clearly are at greater risk. Yeah, so um, well, I appreciate that that sort of nuanced answer, and it, it's a gray area, just like much of what we do. And uh, mm-hmm. as you used the term shared decision making earlier, obviously a very um, great uh, uh, example of why that should take place for that scenario. Well, let's talk about treatment because you've mentioned this now a couple of times, and this is a, a very important part of our conversation today. Can you describe what venom immunotherapy involves, how it benefits patients, like why are we doing it in the first place, and when we should be considering it? Well, we do it because it works. And um, we should consider it in the patients at highest risk for moderate to severe sting anaphylaxis. 
So it, it's like other allergy shots. We're injecting people with the actual allergen that they're allergic to, uh, starting with very small amounts and building up to a dose that uh, induces uh, a, an immune response, a protective immune response that is effective. So we, we think we know the effective doses for uh, inhalant allergens. We now do food immunotherapy. Uh, early in the development of venom immunotherapy, uh, the effective dose was guesstimated uh, based on uh, there's 50 micrograms of venom protein in a honeybee sting. So 100 micrograms is equal to two stings, and they thought, oh, well, that ought to do it. Mm. Um, I, I hate to put it that way, but at that point, that was as good a point as any to start with. Uh, but yellow jackets actually inject only 2 to 20 micrograms per sting. So it's actually 5 to 20 stings worth. For yellow jacket, hmm. um, so the and I, another interesting difference is that um, how fast can we build up the immunity? So with regular other kinds of immunotherapy, the buildup is usually rather slow, uh, especially because we want to avoid causing anaphylactic reactions to the treatment. Um, ironically, with venom, even though we're talking about an anaphylactic allergy. Um, rush venom immunotherapy is as safer, safer than the slower kind. So um, we can build up the immunity to full protection in two to three days. With venom, it's more typically done over a period of two or three or four months. Um, not everybody wants to spend two or three full days in the clinic getting injections. Many, most people would rather go once a week uh, for a period of two or three months and get immunized. But that's how it's done basically, is to build up the dose to a full dose. And we know that that dose, um, in the case of yellow jacket, is almost 98% effective. In the case of honeybee, it's actually only about 80 to 85% effective. Uh, and when I say effective, I should point out, we're not talking about reducing the reaction or making it less severe. Uh, when I say they're protected, that means zero systemic symptoms, not a single hive, uh, no generalized itching, nothing. That I think that's a really important point. Of so you're taking somebody who has, you know, the risk for being having anaphylaxis for the next sting is what did you say before, like fifty to seventy percent or something mm -hmm. like that. Okay, yeah. and now we're protecting them from having any reaction at all while they're receiving therapy. Is that correct? That's correct. So even though I said that honeybee may be only eighty percent effective, the other twenty percent. Uh, almost always have much reduced systemic reactions. The patients are usually pretty happy with that, but we're not. We feel mm -hmm. they should be fully protected, and we'll increase the dose if someone has even a partial reaction. Mm -hmm. And how long do you generally treat somebody with the maintenance dose of their venom immunotherapy? Uh, five years is the short answer. There's been arguments about three years or five years, but it's been shown that five years gives a, a stronger and longer lasting immune response to where people can stop and be pretty much back to the population risk as far as ever having a reaction in the future. Um, and that's the majority of people we treat. There are some people that we learned the hard way early on that if we stop the treatment even after five years, that they may have a reaction again. So we've now recognized some high risk factors, if you will, like mast cell disorders where those patients should actually be on venom immunotherapy for life. Mm, okay. Uh, same for like, you know, beekeepers or high-risk um, professions? Yes. 
So uh, beekeeper, so frequent exposure, uh, and beekeepers would be the the, the most common example uh, of someone that uh, if they're going to get stung, you know, if you if you have a, a moderate moderately severe allergy to stings and you get treated for five years, uh, and you're like most people and you only get stung once every ten years, then mm-hmm. you're going to be pretty safe. Uh, mm-hmm. stopping the treatment. But for someone who gets stung every year or or more than once a year even, um, just because the risk is 10% per sting, that's 10% in 10 years if you get stung once every 10 years. But if you get stung 10 times a year, all of a sudden the risk is higher. Mm-hmm. Okay. Lots of variables to consider. Well, to make it easier, so say somebody is on a prolonged treatment course of their immunotherapy, can the um, frequency of maintenance injections be spaced out over time? Can they just, you know, can they come in once every three months or once every four months, or does it always have to be, you know, every four weeks or something like that? That, that That's part of what makes it so easy and maybe a little too easy sometimes. So yeah, during treatment, the I didn't say that once they build up to the full dose, they have to continue a, a booster dose, if you will, once a month. Hmm. But uh, that can be spread out uh, during the, during those five years, we usually spread it out to six weeks, then eight weeks, then even 12 weeks later on. So if they want or need to continue treatment beyond five years, they only need four shots a year. And I said it makes it a little too easy because even people who we tell them that they we feel that they are safe to stop, they say, oh, well, I only need four shots a year. I'd rather just stay on the shots to play it safe. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we can't really argue too much with that. If it's mm. with, again, that's a quality of life issue for some people, and I totally understand that. But yes, twelve weeks did the sixteen weeks work? Uh, probably yes. There's less evidence to support that. There's a study that showed that six months might be a little too long, meaning the immunity might not be as reliable. Okay. Uh, and you had mentioned before that um, the maintenance dose. So essentially, to, they're getting shots in the office setting, and these are equivalent to a sting and you said two to 20 stings depending upon the venom that they're getting so we're injecting venom into the exact same patient that you know had a severe life-threatening reaction after being injected with venom so (laughs) how safe is venom immunotherapy Uh, as safe or safer than any other immunotherapy that's again it's kind of uh paradoxical but Mm. um the frequency of systemic reactions to the shots is about the same as with other allergy shots. In fact, we see more systemic reactions to cat and grass immunotherapy than to venom immunotherapy. That's interesting. All right, so it's very safe from what you're saying. Yeah, I mean, Um, there are systemic reactions and potential anaphylactic reactions. Although it turns out uh, in retrospect, now that there's been more um, evaluation of those patients, that uh, the number one reason for people having systemic reactions to the injections is an underlying mast cell disorder. Um, so really it it is remarkably safe, even though there is, I I just don't want to ever downplay the chance with any immunotherapy. Like you said, we're injecting Mm -hmm. people with stuff they're allergic to. So, uh, that there's an inherent significant risk when we do that, but, uh, the protocols we use and the experience that we have allow us to say that the, uh, first of all, that the benefit far outweighs the risk and that the risk is very manageable. Okay. Well, as we kind of wind things up here, can I go through some uh, more nuanced scenarios? And and it's okay Mm -hmm. if you don't have the answer to it, but I think it would be great to hear your thoughts on it. Would that be okay with you? Absolutely. 
All right, so let's take somebody who's receiving venom immunotherapy and they're stung during the course of their treatment. Two scenarios. One, they have no reaction at all. Two, they experience a systemic reaction while receiving immunotherapy. Does that then change how long they should be treated for? If they have no reaction, no abnormal reaction to the sting, um, then it's we just brush it off. It doesn't change anything. They get their next uh, shot on schedule. Uh, they don't need more treatment or less treatment or shorter treatment or longer treatment. It, it's just incidental. Um, if they have a systemic reaction to this thing, then that's treatment failure. Uh, even a mild systemic reaction, like I was saying, we consider that uh, insufficient protection. Mm -hmm. uh, so the first thing we would do is investigate for the mast cell disorder because that uh, turns out to be the most common reason for treatment failure. Uh, and we would increase their dose to try to improve their protection. And that's one of the risk factors that um, would lead us to recommend extended treatment. I, I don't want to say lifetime, but we, we would not be so likely to stop that patient after five years if they had a reaction to a sting or a shot during venom immunotherapy. Okay. Well, what about somebody, I'm sure you face this scenario, you have a patient who's clearly experienced anaphylaxis after they were stung in the past, you do the evaluation, you can find um, very clear evidence of detectable IgE towards that venom, uh, but that patient doesn't want to pursue immunotherapy. Uh, what, do you, what do you counsel that patient about? Does your advice change by their age, your, uh, their occupation? Can, this, can their risk wane over time if they're not stung? It's, there are definitely people who, uh, who tell us that. Uh, and the first thing I do is explore with them uh, why. Uh, explore their values. So this is shared decision-making. We explore their values and preferences and why they feel this way. Um, and if we, and if we feel especially strongly about their need to be treated, then we'll express that. But it uh, doesn't mean we're going to change their minds, unfortunately. Um, and if necessary, uh, if they're not going to be treated, then all the more reason to really spend time reviewing uh, different measures to avoid uh, the risk and avoid getting stung and to minimize the risk if you are stung and when to use or not use epinephrine. Uh, so we do the best we can with those patients. Um, the risk of the, the chance of severe reaction is definitely uh, correlated with age and underlying uh, cardiovascular conditions. So uh, the, if I was counseling the patient about what is, because patients, um, I'm thinking about the scenario you, 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 you portrayed, and um, often these are patients who either are relatively young and think they are indestructible. Mm -hmm. we, we all know those patients, and mm -hmm. we're probably not going to change their mind. Uh, or they're older and they think they're indestructible. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but, but they also will argue, well, you know, I, I hardly ever get stung. Why should I get this treatment if I'm not going to get stung for the next 10 years? And if you knew for sure when you were going to get stung, I guess that would be a valid argument. The problem mm -hmm. is you never know when the yellow jacket's going to fly in your car window. Um, <laughs> so, and that's exactly the kind of thing we discuss with the patients is the unpredictable uh, nature of insect allergy, um, and we try to explore whether they, you know, what kind of risks are if they're out in the wilderness hiking, and you know, if they have a high chance of exposure, uh, some of those high risk factors might 
change our assessment and whether we can convey that and change their decision is a question, but those are the kind of things we explore with them and counsel them on. So, uh, Dr. Golden, you, you mentioned about, you know, avoidance strategies and some counseling that you do. Can you give us just a brief um, description of what you advise patients in regards to high-risk scenarios that would increase their, um, you know, risk of being stung? Sure. Um, when it comes to honeybees, it's mostly about, um, and, and we see it more commonly in children because they do these kind of things more than adults, and that's to run around barefoot. Uh, or garden without gloves, because uh, those are the, gonna, going to be the ways that you disturb a honeybee and get stung by a honeybee. Uh, in the case of uh, vespid allergies, yellow jackets especially, um, the, it's more about food. It's about not eating or drinking outdoors, uh, especially, I point out, because uh, I run into this every year, uh, beware of any drink container that you can't see inside of uh, straws or soda cans or uh, other beverage containers because uh, that's just the perfect size for a yellow jacket to get into. Mm. Uh, so uh, I often hear people saying they got stung on the tongue or mouth or throat um, from a yellow jacket that was inside the straw or soda can. Um, or they bit into a sandwich and got a yellow jacket sandwich. Hmm. Uh, because the other, so it's about food and drink primarily. So avoid trash cans, avoid, uh, eating and drinking outdoors, avoid other people who are eating and drinking outdoors. Um, and when it comes to garden, lawn and gardening and yard activities, um, we, we t sometimes talk about nesting areas that nests are often in bushes or lands between the landscape ties. And, uh, the thing about running over with a lawnmower, uh, for someone who's really at high risk, these these are things that ideally somebody else would do, not the patient. Mm -hmm. um, trying to think of other things that we say. You know, some some of the common advice uh, doesn't hold water, as I learned from the entomologist. Uh, the uh, flowery scents and floral colored clothing, and uh, that actually is not what attracts these insects. It's the food. Mm. Um, so. Uh, there's no reason to avoid those kind of things. It's mostly the actual food that you need to avoid. Okay. Oh, Dr. Golden, you've basically given us a mini primer on insect sting hypersensitivity today. We, we really covered a lot of ground. I know this is going to be a very useful conversation for many of our listeners. Uh, is there anything major that we missed? Mm, no, I think. <laughs> uh, you know, the, I... I if I was going to stress things, we've talked about the history being the key. Uh, I always urge uh, allergists and all clinicians to ask the question. Uh, in my opinion, I'm a little biased, but in my opinion, no, no complete medical history is complete without asking the question, have you ever had a severe reaction to an insect sting? Because mm. if you don't ask, they don't tell you. They'll tell you their uncle nearly died from penicillin, but they won't tell you that they actually nearly died from an insect sting. Mm -hmm. um, so ask the question, and and you may. How many times have you seen a patient, Dr. Stukus, who came to see you for uh, food allergy or or uh, pollen allergy, and you asked the question, and they said, "Oh yeah, I did have a severe reaction to a sting years ago." Um, so ask the question is something I, I would stress. But we talked about, you know, we didn't talk that much about the uh, variability of sting reactions, ah. uh, meaning you can get stung. You get someone with severe yellow jacket allergy, 
could come to you and say, uh, oh, but when you tell them how you need to evaluate them, they might say, oh, yeah, but, you know, I, I got stung last year and had no reaction. So I'm okay, right? Well, we actually showed and, and, and published that, um, that that's not necessarily the case. Not only could they be wrong about what kind of insects stung them, there are um, different kinds of yellow jackets, and the mean ones actually have a much higher chance of causing reactions than some of the other kinds. So you could get stung by one of the not-so-mean yellow jackets and not have a reaction and then get stung by the other kind and have a reaction again. Mm. And even doing sting challenges, we would have patients, um, and, and there are there's, a, there's another research group that did the same thing. Uh, there are two others, actually, that did the same thing. Sting people and take the people who, these are people who with insect allergy who you would think they would react to a sting, but many of them don't. But then the ones who don't have a reaction to the sting challenge, you bring them back a month or two later and sting them again. And 20% will have a reaction, even though they didn't the first time. Hmm. To the exact, so what we believe is the exact same kind of yellow jacket, uh, as confirmed by an entomologist. So there's inter-insect difference, inter-species difference, inter-individual patient differences. Uh, so just another complication that makes us never 100% sure that a patient is, is safe, um, that we have to keep in mind. And maybe we didn't mention that kids don't necessarily outgrow insect sting allergy. Mm. Uh, we did a 20-year follow-up study that, that we published showing that, especially the children with the more severe reactions, uh, a lot of times the thinking was, oh, well, they'll outgrow it. Um, if they come to see you now as an adult, maybe you don't need to test them. Uh, and it turns out that, 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 that although many of them do outgrow it, uh, we found uh, up to a 30% chance that they would still have a severe reaction to a sting if stung again 20 years later. Hmm, interesting. And that's a little different than what we see with, say, um, you know, penicillin allergy, where yeah, it's very much it, different. Yeah, yeah. It wanes over time. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Well, where would you send any interested healthcare professionals who would like to learn more about this topic for evidence-based current information? Aside from searching your publications, obviously, in PubMed, are there vetted guidelines or practice parameters that you recommend? Uh, there, there are. The um, Academy and College of Allergy have a joint task force on practice parameters that uh, we've talked before uh, on a podcast about the joint task force on practice parameters. And one of those practice parameters is on uh, insect sting hypersensitivity. Uh, the most recent version or update of those practice parameters on insect allergy was published in January 2017. Um, and we're now thinking about an, uh, another update. Um, these practice parameters are uh, easily accessed uh, by PubMed Search, of course, uh, or on the website of the uh, Practice Parameter Task Force, uh, allergyparameters.org. Uh, is a good place to find the practice parameters on all the many areas that uh, we do practice parameters on in the field of allergy. Okay. Um, so, and we'll put links to that on our website as well for anybody who accesses the podcast through that uh, through that link. Uh, you know, as we kind of really, you know, finalize things, just a couple more questions, if that's okay. Uh, I'd like to start with, you know, do we have any evidence whether climate change has altered the geographic location for different types of stinging insects? For instance, do we are we finding fire ants in new areas compared with where we found them 10 to 20 years ago? Uh, yes. Um which is interesting because a, a, a little sidebar on that is that where there are fire ants, there are not ticks. Uh, 
as much. Mm. And mm. the freak, there, there's an overlapping geographic area between the fire ant population and the tick population that causes uh, uh, alpha-gal sensitivity and meat allergy. Uh, and, be, and with the fire ants spreading uh, slowly but gradually further north, we've, we, we have fire ants in Maryland now, actually, which we never wow. thought we'd see. Uh, it may interact with other species and other conditions, even within the field of allergy, so it's kind of interesting. And a personal note, from I, I'm aware from our colleague uh, in Alaska, um, Jeff DeMaine, who was also one of the authors on our practice parameter, uh, he published observations about uh, the yellow jacket, frequency of yellow jacket stings and allergy in Alaska increasing with the, uh, uh, presumably due to climate change, meaning a, a longer and warmer season. And when I visited Alaska for the first time uh, two summers ago, uh, we were in the heart of Denali National Park, uh, in the very heart of Alaska, and there was a yellow jacket infestation in the cabins we were in. Oh, my gosh. Uh, so, yes, there are, I believe, more and more yellow jackets uh, in, in Alaska. Uh, and so this is two examples of where climate change is probably having an impact on the distribution and numbers of insects that can cause sting allergy. Oh, boy, it's so fascinating. What do you think has been the greatest achievement in the diagnosis and or treatment of insect sting hypersensitivity over the past 20 years? And then along those lines, what do you think are our greatest unmet needs? The, the, I think the things that have occurred in the past 20 years, in this millennium, the things that we've seen that have had the most impact on our clinical practice in this area is uh, what we've learned about clonal mast cell disorders and other mast cell disorders. Uh, we knew nothing about this 20 years ago, and now all of a sudden we have a whole new aspect to anaphylaxis in general and, and even more so to insecting anaphylaxis. It gives us a better handle on the people with the most severe condition and a way of, of identifying them and trying to help them better. Um, we have recognized the uh, risk factors that we've talked about today that tell us who needs who can stop venom immunotherapy after five years and not worry about it and who should maybe continue for many years after that to play it safe. These are things we didn't know 20 years ago and now we do. Um, but there are still important knowledge gaps, uh, some of which we've also mentioned. We don't. We have no idea w why you can have two people with the same test result, the same venom IgE, and one person gets large local reactions and the other person has near-fatal anaphylaxis. Mm -hmm. We don't know why, uh, or what we said earlier about why people um, tend to have the same pattern of reaction and don't usually get worse. Uh, we, we, we've made clinical observations that are really helpful, but we don't know the explanation for them. And if we could, and I think as with most areas in immunology and medicine in general, uh, learning the why will help us a great deal to go far further in knowing how to uh, identify and help the needs of our patients. Mm -hmm. Well, I, one one final question. 
-hmm. and I'm sure I'm sure you're familiar with the Schmidt Sting Pain Index. And for our listeners who aren't, this was developed by an entomologist to basically rate the pain associated with stings from various insects. And according to my sources, uh, i.e., Google, uh, <laughs> apparently mm -hmm. the the bullet ant, which is located in Central and South America, has one of the most painful stings that can maintain its intensity for 12 to 24 hours after a single sting. So what's the most painful sting that you've ever experienced? Mm. Um, there are different uh, components in different venoms that account for those properties. Uh, there are neurokinins in certain venoms, for example, uh, that cause more like intense nerve pain. Uh, so uh, these are toxins. I mean, it's, it's the... Yeah, much like snakes or scorpions or anything else, there are some really important toxins in these venoms. And uh, some of them can be incredibly painful. Um, I've only been stung three times that I know of in my life. Hmm. Um, once, I, once I didn't even know I was stung. Uh, I was at a summer camp at age seven. Hmm. And the counselor hit a home run uh, into, the, into a tree and knocked down a hornet's nest. Mm. And the, the hornets chased us um, for miles. And oh I remember looking down at my jacket and seeing uh, uh, countless numbers of these hornets on the sleeves of my jacket. I wasn't aware of having been stung, but as, as a, as a, in, during my allergy fellowship, we would test each other. And lo and behold, my skin test was positive for white hornet <laughs> um, and nothing else. So that made me think that I probably was stung at age seven and, and sensitized and just never knew it. Um, the, another time I was stung that didn't seem too bad, but would have been uh, tragically ironic. Uh, I was again in, in the wilderness uh, in the heart of uh, the Tibetan highlands in China um, mm. in a nature preserve. And uh I was holding a, a wood handrail of a walkway, and I saw this yellow jacket land on my finger and sting me. And there I am in the wilderness of China thinking, this is, this is great. This is going to be a, quite a headline. World expert <laughs> on insect allergy dies in the wilderness of China because he didn't have his EpiPen with him. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> but I'm, I'm, I'm not allergic as far as I know, and I didn't have any reaction. Um, but the worst, to answer your question was a honeybee sting when I uh, stepped on a honeybee because I was running around barefoot with my uh, young daughter on my shoulders. So uh, it was quite, it, not only was it painful, but then I, I'm, I'm processing this incredible searing pain in my toe with the need to not drop my daughter who's on my shoulders. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> so I have a vivid memory of that event. Oh, I, I'm sure you do. Wow. And uh, is it safe to assume you did not drop her? I did not drop her. Oh, dad of the year, father of the year, father of the decade. <laughs> well, Dr. Golden, you've been so generous with your time. This has been extremely valuable, not only for myself, but all of our listeners. I, I always enjoy um, speaking with you. Do you have any last words before we depart? Take a good history. Ask the question. Mm -hmm. <laughs> okay. All right. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed listening to today's episode. Please visit www.aaaai.org for show notes and any pertinent links from today's conversation. If you like the show, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast through Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify so you can receive new episodes in the future. Thank you again for listening.